Hello, welcome to Fin Insight, Baker McKenzie's Global Financial Institutions Industry Group Podcast. I am Chris Muir. I'm a senior associate in our Zurich office, working in the compliance investigations, international tax, and fintech practice groups. For this episode, we are going to cover the data journey map for virtual communication. We hope to give you practical insights on the use of virtual communications by financial institutions to strengthen your organization's capacity to respond, recover, and thrive as we move through the initial stages of the COVID-19 pandemic into what we hope will be a recovery and renewal phase. COVID-19 is making physical meetings more difficult or undesirable, and all of us are regularly using virtual communications, with Zoom becoming a household name overnight. However, in adopting virtual channels to deliver products and services, financial institutions need to work carefully through issues touching on financial regulation, data privacy, and technology. Our cross-disciplinary experts at Baker McKenzie from our financial regulatory technology and from our financial regulatory technology and data privacy groups have come together to develop a data journey map to help guide your organizations through these questions at a high level. In 10 steps, the map flags up considerations that should form part and parcel of your risk and compliance assessments with a view to mitigating the potential risks of supervisory intervention and litigation. You can find the full data journey map on our website, bakermckenzie.com. In this episode, experts from our global offices will discuss these steps and the corresponding issues arising. They will also share specific action items and relevant considerations from their jurisdictions. I'd like to welcome Valerie Mirko from our North America Financial Regulation and Enforcement Practice Group based in Washington, DC, and Harry Ballack, a partner in our Global Privacy and Security Practice Group based in New York. Hi, how are you? I um, My practice focuses on both regulatory and enforcement matters um, before DSCC, FINRA, as well as state regulators. Um, and I've also, in a past life, did quite a bit of work on cybersecurity and regulation when I was at the North American Securities Administrators Association. Hi there. Uh, thanks for having me today. Um, it's It's good to be here. As uh, just by way of uh, background, I am uh, based in New York, and before joining the firm six years ago, I uh, was a privacy director for MetLife's Global Privacy Office, and often have the benefit of understanding the perspective of our clients internally, as well as the perspectives of our industries that we support here at the firm. So thanks for having me. So it sounds like your expertise will be spot on for the discussion today. So let's get started. And it, so in adopting virtual channels to deliver products and services, let's look at the key considerations to ensure that they are compliant. So Valerie, with respect to applicable laws and their supervisors, what are the common questions organizations should be asking? So first and foremost, coming from my practice, the regulators we would first be focusing on are the SEC and FINRA. Um, first and foremost, record-keeping rules would be what companies should be looking at, particularly SEC Rule 17A4, as well as the FINRA record-keeping rules that apply to broker-dealers 
and SEC record keeping rules for investment advisors. Um, what's interesting here in terms of, you know, one of the questions is being aware of which regulator supervises the entity. So for an investment advisors, it could be just the SEC, but for a broker dealer, it could be the SEC as well as FINRA. So being aware of any overlapping requirements, um, First, first and foremost, who's the primary regulator, understanding which regulator supervises the entity, but then going beyond that when it comes to these specific issues of um, virtual meeting technology, currently there is not much in terms of specific guidance on the use of virtual meeting technology. Um, the What we have that's been really the closest to guidance is FINRA offered some observations for broker-dealers right at the end of May. So FINRA put out Reg Notice 20-16, which is really a set of observations. I wouldn't go as far as calling it guidance, but um, FINRA shared practices implemented by broker-dealer firms that transition to and are supervising in a remote work environment during the COVID-19 pandemic. FINRA has has an approach of publishing observations and findings in a neutral to positive manner, which can generally be taken as understanding that um, generally be taken as a regulator agreeing with how industry has coalesced around a specific approach. So that guidance noted um, that firms had been using um, various virtual technologies and that we're engaging in extra efforts relating to the supervision of associated persons of broker dealers and their customer communications. And one of the things that really jumped out at me is that for video conferencing platforms, FINRA noted that um, firms had disabled certain features and functionalities such as chat, um, which subject to record-keeping obligations that the firms may not be able to necessarily fulfill through certain platforms. So drilling down on that, what this really means is you have, these firms have record-keeping obligations, but for written communications, but when you look at certain platforms for virtual communications, the chat element would be considered a written communication but might not be retained based on the existing technology. So what firms have done is to disable that chat element in order for it to not be used. And then that does not trigger the record keeping obligation for that particular element of the video conferencing. And so we'll move on to the concept of borders. Virtual communications, it can be easy to forget that borders in different jurisdictions are not also virtual. Can you talk us through some of the pitfalls and perhaps how the U.S. may be different than other areas of the world? So from a U.S. perspective, um, what we're the most focused on as a practice, and I have a partner, Rebecca, focuses on these issues quite a bit and works with non-U.S. Baker offices in providing advice to U.S. investment advisors and broker-dealers who do business abroad. Um, It's the sensitivity and awareness for those firms that they have compliance requirements beyond the U.S. borders when they interact with non-U.S. clients. 
and um, to be aware of those, what those triggers are. Any restrictions in non-U.S. jurisdictions um, could very well apply to U.S. companies doing business in those jurisdictions abroad, absent an exemption. Okay, great. So let's move on to the next question. Regulators internationally have placed considerable emphasis on the need for systems to be robust and resilient to cyber attacks. With so many of us in remote working arrangements, what should we be thinking about? Um, So I think first and foremost, um, any outsourced functions, sort of generally, any outsourced functions and technical solutions should be adequately assessed to meet applicable legal and security requirements. Um, And of course, once vetted, it's important that firms use only approved virtual technology that can log and facilitate compliance with applicable requirements. You know, in the U.S., that's whether they're Broker-dealers um, were FINRA as the primary regulator or investment advisors were the SEC as a primary regulator. I did want to note, however, that from the perspective of securities regulators in the U.S., cybersecurity has been very much an ongoing area of focus. It began as early as 2013 and 2014 um, when the SEC did surveys of its registrants State regulators did surveys of their registrants, the smaller state registered investment advisors. FINRA at the time put out a cybersecurity report. But ever since then, securities regulators have been very focused in the U.S. on cybersecurity. And I think 2020, even pre-COVID-19, cybersecurity was already an area of heightened focus, especially for the SEC. and I just want to note that OC, which is the Office of, Compliance, Office of Compliance Inspections and Examinations at the SEC, had announced in its 2020 examination priorities um, that it would be focusing on cybersecurity. That was not a surprise. What was more interesting and instructive in terms of the heightened focus that I expect this year especially was the publication just a few weeks later again in January of this year, um, of an OC report entitled Cybersecurity and Resiliency Observations. Um, You know, looking at those two, both the examination priorities mentioning cybersecurity and then a follow-up report on just cybersecurity and resiliency, and also in 2019, some of the guidance and risk alerts that OC put out, To me, it really, and this is pre-COVID, but I don't think that changes anything. It really at the time provided strong indications that the SEC in 2020 would be ramping up its focus on cybersecurity practices in the financial services industry. And um, at the time in January, we said that we expected increased examination and enforcement activities concerning cybersecurity practices, including vendor management and controls. Um, So really what I wanted to note there is COVID-19 is not going to change that. Um, It may change the timing, but it won't change the heightened awareness and sensitivity of regulators surrounding cybersecurity issues. And if anything, I think COVID-19 will just increase that focus. 
Yeah, this is this is really critical uh, because I think the 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 context in which COVID nineteen almost uh, so abruptly forced everybody into a virtual setting, into a remote setting. Uh, even though the technologies were already in the marketplace, they were not uh, non-existent, but it was really the speed at which uh, uh, organizations were forced to go to a telecommuting uh, virtual context uh, really calls on organizations to uh, assess the risk of what that what that means for for that uh, institution for that financial institution. So if if you were using a technology for one purpose and now you had to redeploy that technology for a, for a different purpose for communication, uh, that is something that needs to be assessed. And so uh, organizations needed to take some immediate steps to continue operations in the midst of the pandemic and the uh, stay-at-home orders to continue business, to continue support of their customers. Uh, but having you know, now been, you know, a few months, we're in our fourth month into this, it is appropriate to assess the, is that, is that, is that technology working as it should? Are the right controls in place for that? Is it secure? Are we, uh, should we be looking for a different technology? Because the regulatory community has made it clear that while it is appropriate to leverage technology, virtual platforms in the context of a pandemic, it is not appropriate to relax security and not uh, make sure that the data that your customers are entrusting your organization with can be compromised. So that's great. Yes. So it seems like these issues have become very much into the forefront uh, during this pandemic. And there's the expectation that organizations are being proactive in handling these issues. So I suppose every new technology while offering benefits also has risks. So what sort of controls should the organizations put in place and what do the regulators expect from those organizations? I think, and we already saw that with the FINRA guidance, um, to some extent, the 2016 observations that were specific to the remote work environment and supervision during the COVID-19 pandemic. I think the, the important part here is, is a regulatory expectation that all of these decisions um, and changes that result from being in a remote work environment, that there is supervision and oversight around decisions, that they're adequately documented, that the risks are weighed as well as the benefits, that the decision-making is, um, is a thoughtful process even though it may be, you know, it may have occurred in a fairly compressed time, fairly compressed range of time since, um, of course, you know, in things moved very quickly in terms of firms moving to a remote work environment. So I think the most important part here is a regulatory expectation that there's a thoughtful process around change that there are supervisory controls regarding these changes, that there are controls around these changes as well. Okay, great. And since the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis and the move to remote working arrangements, there have been concerns around the ability of firms to properly supervise and monitor their staff, particularly 
those in customer-facing or trading roles. Regulators expect firms to take steps to mitigate risks such as market conduct and mis-selling. Could you talk us through some of these considerations for virtual communications? I think first and foremost, as firms are adopting these technological solutions for virtual communications, the, the first question is really, does the solution allow the firm to adequately su supervise the activities of the associated person? You know, um, can these sessions be recorded and retained depending on which record keeping obligations apply? Um, and so forth. So I think that's that's the first part of making this decision is, is looking at the technology solution and whether it can allow fulfillment of regulatory requirements. The second part of it has more to do with the concept of supervising in a remote working environment. And of course, this is continually evolving. Um, in terms of whether firms are at 100% remote right now, or if they are in, you know, if um, their employees are in the office in shifts, one week on, one week off, it just really depends. Um, but I think an important element there is to ensure that there is additional support and communication for staff. And so you had mentioned earlier that even before the COVID-19 pandemic, Regulators were placing increasing importance on cyber resilience in the view of the growing risk of cyber attacks as we move to a digital economy. So the consensus is both that this trend has received new impetus in cyber attacks and they are increasing in number and impact. So what do regulators expect of organizations using virtual communications? Well, it's, it's really clear that they expect now what they expected then, uh, which is now post COVID-19 and you know, then being pre-COVID-19. And that is that organizations have appropriate administrative, physical, and technical controls to protect their environments against unauthorized access to customer data. And so having the right incident response plans in place, having the right third-party assessment platforms in place, having the right training in place for your for your, your uh, staff and employees and consultants and third-party uh, service providers. All of that was expected before uh, the pandemic and before the systemic use of virtual platforms. And all of that is expected even more so now uh, because of that. And, and, and not just from the regulatory community, I, I would add, it's also expected from the public, from consumers, from customers, uh, both on the B2C side and the B2B side. So keeping, uh, keeping abreast of what the risks are, continuing to monitor the risks, uh, because we're learning more as we're into this, right? We're learning about ourselves. We're learning more about the technology. We're learning more about the features. And so it's important to have uh, a grasp of all of these things and be prepared to, to respond effectively and efficiently. Well, this is all uh, new, not just to you, it's new to all of us. It's new to the regulatory community. It's, it's, but the expectations remain in place that uh, you've had now you know, multiple weeks and several months and you, your, your incident response plan should be updated uh, appropriately and accordingly 
to uh, capture and manage the risks associated with the use and dependence on virtual communication platforms. Okay, great. And so the next consideration after an organization has proactively addressed these issues is the risk of a regulator asking questions or enforcing the regulations. So we're all aware of the importance of data protection and the growing risks of enforcement actions. What are the data protection issues for organizations using virtual communications and how can they protect themselves? Yeah, I think an easy, there's there's lots of things to do associated with something like this, but I think the easy and maybe easy is not the right way to put it, but the obvious uh, steps are in transparency, uh, just develop, developing clear guidance on how those virtual meetings will be conducted. This is helpful for your customers, and it's it's helpful for your uh, employees and your reps. Uh, so updating your customer privacy notice just to capture the types of information that you uh, would be collecting in the virtual environment, the types of information that you're going to be retaining, and for how long. All of these should be done in accordance with minimization of data, in accordance with the security of data, with a, in accordance with, you know, a need for that information, um, and an understanding of having a clear uh, sense of what is needed and communicating that both to your internal community, internal stakeholders, and your customers is critical. So this may seem to be an obvious point, but what about training for staff? What are the key considerations here? I think first and foremost, um, and I've often used this analogy since COVID-19 began, which is, you know, part of continuing, um, a part of business continuity in this COVID-19 framework has much, has been much like continuing to drive the car while changing the wheels on the car for certain business processes. I think training is the key to to getting through that. Um, Firms, by and large, have had robust business continuity plans. Um, Several firms in the U.S. even had pandemic-focused business continuity exercises prior to COVID-19. But really, what brings it all together in these situations where firms need to pivot very quickly is... um, First, thoughtfulness around decision-making, even if the time frame is compressed. But secondly, ensuring that there is um, training around any changes. Um, so I think in the context of virtual communication platforms, something that firms, I think, did very well in the U.S. was as they were rolling out these additional capabilities to their client-facing personnel, they coupled that with training as opposed to just rolling out the platform. But I think that's really, really key in terms of a key, in terms of uh, being a key consideration of um, rolling out anything um, for virtual communications during what I'm going to call the initial COVID-19 stress. And now as firms move towards staying in what is something of a pandemic posture, depending on where they are regionally, um, I think it's just as important that firms consider any changes or additions to to their toolkits in terms of communicating with clients through virtual platforms, coupling that with follow-up training. Well, obviously, 
we all, uh, especially in the fin- in the highly regulated space, financial institutions, training is something that is, uh, you know, quite common and quite painful in many ways because there's so much of it. And there's often, uh, you know, a, a significant consideration as to when to do it because every time you're taking, especially a, uh, a profit-facing rep, off of the field and putting that uh, him or her into a training session, you're taking them away from work they could be doing, revenue generating work, that is. So there's significant considerations about adding yet additional training, but look for opportunities to embed uh, the risks and the new considerations into an existing training that is already taking place. Obviously, we want to, ideally, this is the kind of thing that you want to include in mandatory training. It's already taking place. The, the idea is, is to figure out where to embed it. I think I'm usually reluctant to require a standalone training, especially for something like the use of virtual communication platforms, although it may be appropriate if, if you are a new joiner or um, uh, there's uh, some sort of uh, requirement in your jurisdiction that may call for it, or if there's some other reason, right? If the person has shown a pattern of disregard for existing company policy, that might be appropriate for that individual to receive individualized training that is that is focused. But generally speaking, uh, the most effective approach to do this on, uh, on an enterprise level is to in- in- embed it and incorporate it into existing training uh, and look for ways to uh, communicate, not just in the context of training, but maybe through communications, through alerts, uh, through uh, brief reminders that can go out to uh, to individuals, uh, to reps, and you know, even there's an element of of training uh, customers here, right? Uh, when you're reaching out and communicating with them, there's 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 mandatory training that that we're all very familiar with, but there's also messaging and communications that can help set the right expectations for everyone. This is, as I said earlier, this is new for not just you, this is new for all of us, both as as financial professionals, but also as consumers of financial services and the, the role that regulators are playing. There's a level of patience and understanding, but there's also, uh, there's going to be some heavy, consequences to organizations that mismanage this piece. So it's really, it's really critical. Okay, great. And so the conversation's focused a bit on internal operations, as I'll call them. Uh, but the all these firms and organizations we've discussed are in the business of selling services or products. So turning outward, how should these firms or organizations best launch new products and services using virtual communications? Firms have less of a compressed time frame because, as you said, this is sort of looking a little bit longer term. So I think, you know, that that's where testing the experience before full deployment, assessing challenges and risks against those in- anticipated before launch. Um, those are all things that firms have a little bit more luxury of time before they launch this new product. Um and I think that's that's really where using that time for more testing and more assessment before launch is helpful. Yeah, I think 
that's a that's a great question. Uh, it, it's been uh, it's been several weeks, even months uh, at this point, and so uh, by now, there's the hope is that you've had an opportunity to uh, assess in at least phases. But if you haven't, you know the 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 consensus is uh, approach this in bite size uh, pieces as opposed to a full deployment through your entire community because you may find yourself overwhelmed with what you may find with both at the practice, you know, what the practices may be, what the preferences might be. Uh, It's really, I think, critical to maybe deploy in phases, you know, pick a community, pick a product, pick the jurisdiction, whatever, however you want to frame it and try to learn, you know, in short bite size, uh, you know, pieces so that you can assess uh, and then, redeploy in a way that that is effective. Obviously, you don't want to keep doing this in perpetuity. Uh, I, w- I would say maybe two rounds might be appropriate just so that you're able to learn and then and then soft launch and then full launch. Uh, but obviously, there is a lot of considerations on the regulatory side that you know my my partner Valerie has has described for, from a technical side and from a data privacy and, and security side that the, the the phased approach is always going to reap uh, a better result. Okay, great. And thinking about the customer now, we've been looking at virtual communications and the steps to launch from the perspective of the organization. What about the organization's customers? Is it necessary to manage their expectations over the utility of the solution? You know, that's an interesting question because I always think Before COVID-19, we all used the phone a lot more than virtual conferencing. And um, we didn't have as many sort of conversations around using the phone. Um, But it has its own inherent limitations that in a lot of ways virtual meetings don't have. So, for example, um, when a rep, whether it's a broker-dealer rep or an investment advisor rep, was on the phone with a client, before COVID-19, they did not have the capability of showing a document real time on the screen along with the conversation. What, what might have happened um, then was that, you know, the rep was on the phone with the client and might have emailed a document so that both the client and the rep had it open on their computers at the same time. So I, I think it's important um, to educate clients around sort of what what else um, a virtual meeting adds. But I think by and large, because virtual platforms have just had such an uptick in use in all aspects of day-to-day work and life in the U.S., I think that's sort of, um, I think the limitations have been worked through in terms of socializing them on a, on a larger level. That said, I still think it's important um, to manage expectations in any client communication, whatever the platform being used, whether it's the phone or a virtual platform. And also, and this is something that firms are very aware of in terms of delivery of any documents that, that are relevant to the meeting and ensuring that those documents are both um, both that the record keeping around the delivery of those documents is is handled in compliance with regulatory requirements, but secondly, also ensuring um, 
that there's appropriate client consent from clients um, in terms of receiving certain documents via email as opposed to um, as opposed to on paper. That's still something that in the U.S. the default um, client delivery mechanisms are paper based, and there needs to be consent for e- for electronic communications. Um, so where I'm going with this is. A firm needs to be sensitized that if a client has not um, necessarily opted in for electronic communications, that any follow-up communications from a virtual platform client interaction may actually that may occur over email may require additional consent. So I think it's just Firms being really aware of their client relationships, how those were handled before COVID-19, and if reps are using virtual communication platforms to interact with their clients now, continuing to have that situational awareness of ensuring um, that all regulatory requirements are met beyond the use of the virtual communication platform, but surrounding delivery of documents to the client, um, and any other follow-up steps from those meetings. Do you have any final thoughts or considerations that we should share or that are important to remember in the, during this time and also going forward? Um, yes, actually. You know, I think investment advisors and broker-dealers and just generally the asset management and brokerage industries in the U.S. were beginning to use virtual communication tools prior to COVID-19. I think COVID-19 has accelerated all of that over the last few months, but I think firms really have an opportunity now. You know, we've discussed, they've, um, we're past the initial stress of the pandemic. And now not only may we continue to function in more of a pandemic posture for some amount of time, but looking at the opportunities that are available as a result of virtual communication platforms. And as opposed to doing it in a time of stress and in a compressed time frame, looking at it from a broader perspective, how can that technology be leveraged um, to continue to foster and maintain um, positive customer relationships? I think the asset management and the brokerage industries have a real opportunity and much more of a runway now than they did a few months ago when they were implementing a lot of these tools um, on a more compressed time frame. I think now's the time to really look ahead and see what what are the useful tools. Um, are there ways to sharpen supervision and compliance around the use of those tools, and really take it from there? Yeah, this is this is. Uh, my sense is that is that this is here to stay. The we have been kind of catapulted into uh, virtualizing our experiences with our customers again, both on the B two C and the B two B side. And I really struggle to see some sort of regression back to mostly in person interactions. I just see this being uh, the new norm in many ways. Uh, I certainly hope that we're, we get past COVID-19, but the virtualization of our experiences, having been here, I think is here to stay. And so it is going to be critical for organizations to think differently, think virtually, think through the, 
the technological and the regulatory implications of what this virtualization of our experiences will mean, that may mean a, a, a more uh, disciplined approach to, to selecting our virtual technology platforms, not just for performance, but also for privacy and security considerations, for regulatory considerations, uh, how those platforms get reviewed and approved, not just from an IT sourcing perspective, but from an internal regulatory perspective. Um, how, how does the regulatory community, how would this platform be perceived you know, when I am undergoing a market conduct examination? Uh, what, what are my competitors uh, doing in this area? What are they using uh, to achieve uh, the similar result? Is, is the uh, provider and the platform that I'm selecting, are they, are, are they veterans and are they comfortable with the regulatory obligations that are imposed on our industry? Or are they really kind of coming to this industry uh, fresh? And so a lot of the solutions and the options that are coming out of the box are really intended for an industry that is far less regula- regulated. Because all those all those considerations, I think, will play a role in a successful deployment, both on, on the experience that, that your users internally have and also on the experience that your uh, consumers have. As I said, there's, there's a, a, I think, a high level of patience in the regulatory community and among consumers for organizations that are pivoting into this environment. We've all seen the dogs barking in the back and the kids running into into a virtual meeting, but there is little patience in the market and there is a a tremendous appetite in the plaintiff's bar uh, on the class action side for organizations that simply misstep and poorly execute on security, poorly execute on unauthorized access to information because the expectation is that you... Uh, keep this as a top of mind issue. So uh, lots to do, lots to think through here, but we're always happy to help. And we're just a phone call away if there's if there's questions on your end. We really appreciate the chance to, to be with you here today. So thank you. And thank you to all our listeners for joining us to discuss the data journey map for virtual communications. We hope that you found this high level introduction helpful, but please do look at the map itself. There are separate versions for North America, EMEA and Asia Pacific, which are available on bakermckenzie.com. You can also find information on how to contact our panel experts here, as well as other key experts in your jurisdiction. If you found this podcast helpful, you may be interested to know that Baker McKenzie has produced a series of podcasts related to the theme of resilience, recovery, and renewal in the, the light of the COVID-19 crisis. Thank you for listening, and we hope you can join us for the next edition of FI Insight. Thank you.